Good morning, Bedrock Church. Good morning. How are we? Good. Good. Um, we're going to be in Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 today. We're going to continue in our Mark series. Excited to do so. Talk a lot about Jesus. Uh, if you... Um, if you need to catch up, uh, we would encourage you to read through the couple uh, first nine chapters of Mark. If you're just jumping in now, that's totally fine. We're going to catch you up. We like to do a lot of context uh, as best we can. And we took a little bit of a break for Christmas and um, we looked at the genealogy in Matthew. And it was, uh, it was encouraging to see, uh, to see what the, how the Lord just equips. And he has, from the beginning, set this plan forward um, and what that means for us today. But we're jumping back into Mark, and I have been looking forward to it. Uh, so today we are in Mark chapter 9. We're going to be going verse 30 through 37. Uh, if you need a Bible, they're on the ends of the aisles. Uh, if you don't have one, you can take that one home, for it, home with you. No problem. It's yours. Um, all right, so we followed the life and ministry in Jesus, and he's at this point now. We kind of just kind of have to take a moment and catch ourselves back up. Um, he's at this point now where there's this, there's this transition that took place. Uh, so he starts in Galilee, which I don't have a map today, so you're just going to have to like close your eyes and imagine with me. But he starts in Galilee, uh, which is the majority of where his ministry is taking place. And what happens initially is this movement begins. So Jesus begins to teach, but he begins to do miracles, and this movement happens, and so these crowds begin to form. And by the time that you get to um, Mark chapter 6, there's already these crowds of thousands of people that would come to see Jesus. Uh, and then there's a, like we said, a transition that takes place in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus brings his disciples to the side, and he kind of just brings them in. He asks them, who do people say that I am? And... They respond, and then he asks another question. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter gives this like, crucial, incredible answer of that we believe that you are the Christ. So for the first time, he, he says, you're the Messiah. But Jesus immediately reveals that that wisdom was given to him through the Father and to not tell anyone yet. And then you see what's revealed over the next couple chapters is that even Peter didn't fully understand what that means. And so if the first question that is placed in the first portion of, this past, of, of the book of Mark is, who do people say that I am? People trying to figure out who Jesus is. Now we're in this portion of discipleship where the question that's before us is, what, is, what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? And so now you have Jesus and his disciples, and the circle has gotten significantly smaller. The crowds are less, the location is different. You should feel a transition happening in the book. So let's go into our passage. Mark chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 30. It says, They went from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Verse 33 says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they were arguing over which one another was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, 
If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him into his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we, um, Lord, we're desperate. Um, we need you. Um, we need you today. We need you to intervene. Uh, this is your word. You revealed truth, Lord. I pray that, um, Lord, I pray that Jesus would be made much of today. Um, Lord, I, I pray that we would gaze at who Jesus is, the truth that he brings, um, Lord, and I pray that that would convict, I pray that that would shape, I pray that that would change us. Lord, today we get to look at the love and heart of Christ, and um, Lord, I, I pray that, that that alone would be enough for us to just be led to worship in all of our lives. Um, Lord, I pray that that worship would look different, that we would worship in service, that we would worship in sacrifice, that our worship would look um, a lot like Christ. Uh, Father, we love you. In your name, amen. All right, so we said um, at the beginning, there's the transition that took place. Uh, Jesus is making this initial transition in many ways. He goes from Galilee to Jerusalem. He goes from the crowds to his disciples. He goes from parables to teaching plainly. He goes from conflict with these religious leaders to confronting his, the beliefs of his closest followers. And then all of this is because the cross is coming. Um, and you feel that tension. It begins to build. He says there's three times. If you start in, um, in the middle of uh, chapter 8 where Jesus begins to predict very explicitly what is going to happen. He speaks very plainly. He says, this is, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go. I'm going to be handed over. And when I'm handed over, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And on three days later, I'm going to come back from the grave. And every time that he says it, it feels like you would think that the disciples would get it just a little bit more. But it feels like they become even more distant from actually truly understanding what he's saying and why he's saying these things. He predicts his death over and over and over again, almost to the point where it feels like the crucifixion itself is like another character in the story. Like its presence is just growing. That as they go from Galilee to Jerusalem, as they're making their way back through Capernaum, that you can feel that the presence of the future crucifixion is gaining. It's like it's movement. It's coming. This is coming. So we should feel this tension begin to rise. So after the first time that he predicts his death, um, Jesus says this, and this is how it always goes. He makes this prediction that I am going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, I'm going to, be, I'm, going to, I'm going to raise again after three days. And then he follows it up. First of all, they're always confused. They're always like, I, have no, I don't know what you're talking about. And then, and then immediately after that, he follows this up with a teaching. So this is like the discipleship portion. And it feels like every teaching that he, that he takes time to teach is around the idea of the crucifixion. Like that embodies all of it. And so you have this moment where Jesus then predicts his, his, um, his death in Mark chapter 8, 34. And after that, it says, if anyone were to come after me, he says, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. A crucial, crucial teaching. That's just like a discipleship foundational passage. This is what it means to be a disciple. He says, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise again. 
and this is what it looks like to follow me, that if you're going to follow me, your life is going to look like mine. Like, and I think in the simplest way, we should expect that. Like if you were to say that you're a follower of somebody, that you would begin to look like that person. And we do that. We're shaped by all kinds of things. And Jesus says the thing that is difficult about the, the life of Christ is that his life is full of self-denial and sacrifice. And they don't fully understand what that means and how that's going to play out, but that is what defines his life. And so he says, if you're going to be one of my followers, you're going to, in some sense, in some measure, experience this same rejection that he experiences. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship says this. He says, the cross means sharing the sufferings of Christ to the last and to the fullest. Only a man thus totally commit to discipleship can experience the meaning of the cross. The cross is there right from the beginning. He has only to pick it up. This idea that the cross, this continued sacrifice and self-denial that we're called to as followers of Jesus Christ is fully available to us in every single day. There's a requirement as a follower of Jesus to die to yourself, your own desires, your own flesh, your own passions, and to pick up the way of Christ, the better life, the way of Jesus, his truth, and to walk in it. And it leads, this is the beautiful part, is that all of that, that self-denial, that sacrifice, ultimately, because he has taken up the cross before us and he took on death at the end and there's life, what that means for us is life. That you would think that complete self-denial and sacrifice would only lead to death, but what it actually leads to because of Jesus is life. That the way to to actually endure, the way to actually experience life to the fullest is to walk in this, that Jesus has made a way. So you see the crucifixion is at the center of all this, but as we keep reading, he kind of says this again, and the first thing that we're going to see in our passage today is that we are consumed by the desire to be great. We are consumed by the desire to be great. So again, we have this one instance where Jesus predicts his, his crucifixion. Now he does it again. And, and you have this teaching that follows. And this is what he says. It's kind of this scene that plays out. It says in verse 33, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Um, Jesus does this often where he reveals our heart with a question. He asks a lot of questions. You ever notice that? Jesus, he teaches a lot, but most often he teaches through questions. He'll ask you a question first, it reveals your heart, and then he'll speak truth to that heart. So this is what he does. He asks this question, he understands what they were talking about, but they don't give an answer. I don't know that I would have either, because it kind of seems silly. Um, that they were on the way, immediately after Jesus is saying, I'm going to die with self-denial as kind of like the whole theme, that they would be, they would be like almost simultaneously discussing who's the best amongst them. Um, and it seems silly, but then I think it's a conversation that we have all the time. Like this is something that is almost ingrained in us. It's like not easy um, to avoid it, even when you turn on the TV. I, I mean, this is, I, I was thinking about it. I'm like, they're having the LeBron James, Michael Jordan conversation right here. Who's the greatest? 
We're not satisfied with being anything less. It's not, it's not okay to be good. It's not okay to excel. We want to know who's the best. And that's the conversation that they're having. And I can't imagine what they're saying. You know, I'm like, I'm like Sydney, I'm like, what do you, I mean, what are they, I'm, I was thinking through, I'm like, what are the, some distinctives about these guys? Andrew's like, I was the first one that was, that was called, so, you know, that's got to be worth something. John is like, I'm the youngest, but he's clearly the one that he loves the most, so, you know, that's got to be worth something. Peter's like, listen, I'm the only one that got out of the boat, so, listen, that's got to be worth something. And then at some point, they all say, all right, we agree that, like, it can't be Matthew, because Matthew's a tax collector, so there's no way it's Matthew. We still really don't even know why you're here, you know? <laughs> I don't know that they said that, but Matthew was given a hard time throughout. I think there's this just like competition that we naturally have with each other where we take our achievements and we just measure. And it just, when you bring it out like that, it just feels silly. It's like, is this really the conversation that you're having right now? And I think there's, there's a reason for their silence. Jesus is modeling this self-denial, and they're consumed with this self-promotion, and partly because that's the only thing that they've ever seen, right? So even politically, if you look at like Caesar at that time, that leader, the reason that he's a leader is because of the family that he was born into and the way that he suppresses others. If you go to like their spiritual leaders, their examples, right now they think Jesus is the Messiah. And for them, that means he's a political, religious leader that's going to change the world and they're coming with him. And so what they're trying to do is jockey for position so that they can get into a place where they're going to experience power, stature, honor. And they're like, this is coming for us. And so they see the leaders of their time, the Jewish leaders of their time, and what they see is this system that was built so that those at the top would be able to suppress those that are at the bottom. Everything was built around that. A Pharisee wouldn't even, this is why it was so offensive that Jesus would even sit at the table with people that were considered sinners. Like Pharisees wouldn't even be caught in the, in the presence of others that they didn't think deserved their presence. There's like all of this is about leaders being elite and everyone else being beneath them. And so they begin to think about this and immediately their flesh begins to do the same exact thing. Where they begin to at least like just begin to measure each other. But who's the greatest? Who's the greatest among us? And, and they begin to push. And I think... Um, this is the other thing that I see, and this, this to me is exactly what's happening. We are all consumers. Um, so we live in a consumer market, and uh, that means a lot of different things. One of the things that it means that every commercial that you see, I don't know if you realize it or not, what they're trying to do is they're trying to convince you um, that you need something. Uh, what they're selling you on ultimately is not actually that product. They're saying this product is going to serve you. And so they're selling you on future you. You'll be better off if you got this, right? So there's this consumer mentality. and We begin to consume all of these things and it's, it's woven into us. It's actually the, what we do with each other as well. That you see every person, every product, every opportunity as a potential chance to benefit your self-promotion. We consume things, that we consume people, so much so that they would look at Jesus and they would begin to consume him and they would see him and they would say, there's an opportunity for me in this. There's an opportunity here that they would look at Jesus and his ministry, they would see healing and in the midst of that, their conversations would be, where will I sit? 
Where will I sit? What can, what can I get out of this? There's an opportunity. And so there's this, there's this natural thing that's in all of us where we are just, we are full of pride. We are full of self-promotion. And Jesus in the midst of all of this is just so patient. I just, it blows my mind <laughs> that in the midst of all of this, that he would still just quiet their hearts he would ask them a question, and that he would sit among them. And um, we see this. We see that Jesus, what he's doing here, and what he's about to teach them, goes against everything that, that is instinctual to them, goes against everything that they've ever been taught. It goes against our own very nature that we would take advantage of everything that we can to promote ourselves. But this is something radically different. Paul understood this in Philippians chapter 2. He says this. He's, this is ultimately this lived out. He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to the interests, your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Get this, like, look at, this. he goes from do nothing out of rivalry, conceit, be humble, count others more significant than yourself, but what he acknowledges right here is you can't do this on your own. Like, this, will, this is a burden for you. You're going to grow tired. This is not your instinct. You are, like, you are going to naturally just consume and promote yourself, but what is going to be the thing that changes it all? He says, have this mind among all of you, which is yours, in Christ. It's him. It's, he's the one that embodies this fully. And then, not only yours, remember what we said about the teachings? Jesus seems to be obsessed with them just understanding the crucifixion. It says this in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cross seems to be the way that we love each other. Um, at least that's what I think Paul sees. And when you see here, what we see in our, in our first point was that we are consumed with this desire to be great but what Jesus is drawing out of his disciples is that my kingdom and my people are different. Because I am different. Power is going to look much different in my kingdom than it does in this world. Greatness is going to look much different in my kingdom than it does in this world. So the second thing that we see is that true power is found in love. Okay, so they're making their way back through Capernaum, um, and they're trying to avoid the crowds this time. So they're, they're going from transfiguration and mountaintop moment, working their way back towards Jerusalem, back to Jerusalem through Capernaum. They find themselves back at a house in a place that is very familiar. It's the last time that they're going to be here. But they're back most likely in Peter's house, um, which, is, which is the place where many significant things have happened, but it's also the place where... 
Um, Jesus exposed the hardness of the Pharisees' heart. He healed the, the lame man. He healed a man with a, with a withered hand. And he also exposes the hearts of the Pharisees. And now he's sitting with his disciples. And his disciples are going through something very similar where their hardness of heart is also being exposed. And the irony in the story is that you have these disciples which are meant to be completely different than the Pharisees, but you see a similar issue where they both have this issue of not understanding and being prideful and wanting to promote themselves. And so now you're sitting here with Jesus is sitting here with his disciples. It says first in 30, verse 35, it says, and he sat down, which the fact that he sits down alone is a position of teaching. Like this is what would happen with religious teachers in that day, that you would sit and their students it would literally sit, on their, sit under them. That you would you understand like if you have someone that you're sitting under that you're learning from that person. And this is what would happen is that the teacher would sit and he would teach and everyone else would sit around them. And so Jesus, he sits down in this position of teaching and he calls the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So there's virtue in being last. And um. I think this is where Jesus completely breaks the mold of what it means um, to have power at this, in our world and specifically at this time. So a, a desire to be first in our world is celebrated, clearly. Um, if we wrote a book that says this is like 10 ways in how to be, how to be last, it would not sell. <laughs> um, if if we were to all, I mean, some of the things that we say to the victor goes to spoils, we're second to none. Um, we spend millions of dollars, like there's gonna be a championship football game in college tomorrow. We spend millions of dollars to figure out not who's last, but who's first. Every year, in every single significant sport, in every field that you're in, like there's, there are benefits to being first. You get, you get celebrated, you get honors, you get accolades, we celebrate those that are first. And if you're not first, it's cutthroat. It's right. It's a matter of just continuing to achieve to get to the point. And Jesus says, okay, but in our, in my kingdom, in my kingdom, let me just like give you a view in the kingdom of God. Those that want to be first, they're actually going to be last. And I think in in this day, it may, there's potential, like we understand that. And sometimes I feel like there's um, we feel like there's because there is such a significant gap in time between us and them that they didn't go through or feel the same things. I think there's potential that they even more so felt that than we did. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons that they would have felt that is because there is something um, and they functioned in their society, in their family, in their homes, um, in their kingdoms. There was something that was called a birthright. Um, and a birthright is something that was handed down. So it's, it's power in every family, it's power, it's possession, it's authority, it's honor. And this birthright is given to the firstborn just because of position. Just because of position, and that's it. So if you're the firstborn in your family, you're given the birthright. If, you're, if you are a king, you want a son so that you can hand over the kingdom, the birthright. And this is just the way that they operated. And so Jesus enters into this, and it's no surprise now that you look at this, that Jesus has, that he says this, because if you look throughout the Old Testament, Jesus and God seem to flip this on its head all the time. Um, it's not surprising that, so God is, this is the same God that elevated Abel above Cain, 
same God that elevated Isaac above Ishmael, same God that elevated Jacob above Esau, and ultimately the same God that selects David over Saul. Like God is constantly, all throughout the Old Testament, selecting the least, those that are at the bottom, and giving them a position of prominence. It doesn't mean that it always goes well. It doesn't. But you see him do this over and over and over again. And Jesus here looks at his disciples. He says, in my kingdom, it's the least. Those that want to be first are going to be last. Um, What it models and what he shows is that um, he's revolutionizing power. He's showing his disciples that real power is gained through love, and it can be seen in humility and service. You see this all throughout Scripture. Romans and Paul, again, says, love one another with brotherly affection. He says, outdo one another by showing honor. And then in Colossians, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bear with one another, And he says, if one of you has a complaint against the other, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. He redefines what love is. We see this. um, It's a difficult thing. I think you see it with, with Jesus. And it's a very difficult thing to actually practically live out. Um, That we would desire wholeheartedly that because, of, because we see that God has loved us, that our, our response to that would, that would be that all people, that all people would see and experience the love of Christ through us. But that is honestly what defines us. That's what makes us who we are. That's what's what makes us the people of God. So the last thing that we see is that true love is displayed towards all people. True love is displayed toward all people. And so he gives this teaching, but then he also, um, he also illustrates it. And so verse 36 says, And he took a child, and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, children today... Um, are they have a completely different experience growing up so if you're having a child congratulations but this is what your life most likely looks like uh there's nine months of preparation there's nine months of just getting ready and excitement everybody knows everybody wants to know the gender you figure that out like crazy early have you ever seen the actual scans you can almost like see the baby inside it's like wild And so you're praying over it, you're excited, baby arrives, it's already got the nursery painted, you've got like a whole pile of stuffed toys that they they will never play with um, in the corner. You've got everything ready for this baby to arrive, baby comes in, you set it down, and you just stare at it, you know? It's just like, this is awesome. Um, Or it just cries the whole time, which is the experience with Annabeth, but you know, it's... It's difficult, but either way, you, you go through this just like anything. Everything's about safety as much as you could possibly can to take care of this human life, and it should be, and that's beautiful. Um, but at this time, it was a lot different. Like the society that they're in was a whole lot different. So Jesus takes this child, but a child was looked at differently. 
So in that time, if a child was seen as something that wasn't actually contributing to the culture and the society that was in, so it didn't actually have real value until it was grown up and had some way to be utilized amongst. Like you are looking at a, uh, a culture that highly values like human labor. So if there's no way that you're going to contribute to that, then you're going to have a difficult time. And so children had a difficult time, not only because of that, just because honestly the mortality rate was really high. So oftentimes children didn't make it, neglect and sickness. So you're at a completely different time. So maybe we look at children and we're just like, of course Jesus takes a child into his arms. And we love that and we draw a picture of it. They look at children and they're just like, wow, that he would actually grab a child and he would put him in his, in his lap. I don't know if he put him in his lap. It says that he, he grabbed him. He would, that he would put him and take him into his arms and that he would hold him. That... Um, Wow, that's radical. But for us, we see that all the time, but it changes the way that we see it. What Jesus is saying is that even those that when you serve them may not, may not give you praise back, even those that when you serve them may not give you the, like, there's no benefit in it for you, even those that are at the bottom of society, that their very existence is dependent on the service of others. Like, even those, you serve those those that receive them, those are the ones that will receive also Christ and the Father. So he uses this child as a picture of one that is desperately in need of others to serve, but oftentimes is neglected. And he uses the word receive. And I think if you've been here for a while, we... Um, we very much, like if there's ever a time that a word is, is, is repeated, it, it kind of just speaks to its significance. So in verse 37, it says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Um, he says it four times in one verse. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. The irony in this passage is that the disciples in this moment were asking, what's in it for me? What will I receive? Like, that's the irony, <laughs> is that the whole picture is that these disciples have been asking, but like, what will I get out of this? What can, what can following Jesus do for me? And what he's drawing out for them is that those that are welcoming the least of these are the ones that will be welcomed by me. What we see is that how we receive others is evidence of how we have received the Father and been received by the Father. So for, for them, it's a, it's a child. Um, but, you know, for, for us, we live in the city of Philadelphia. And maybe it is a child. Um, but, but also we, we live in a place where um, there is also a higher mortality rate and there's crime and there's people that are under resource and there's those that need to be served and it feels like everywhere that you go you just kind of grow accustomed to um, people that just have needs. And I think it's easy. I think it's, it becomes something that is just there a part of your life. And I think it becomes something um, that can be overlooked every single day. But I think what he's saying here is that there's to, to be seen as um, a member of the kingdom, to, be, to display the kingdom into a broken world, is to love those that are not loved, is to care for those that need to be cared for. 
And in that, what you see is that those people will receive something that they never, ever anticipated fully, that there would be power in that. That power is seen in actually humbly submitting ourselves in service. So, yeah, as we, um, as we finish up today, I think um, this all comes back to the cross. All of it. Every, every portion of this, every teaching that we're going to come across, um, every, everything that we do over the next three chapters specifically comes back to the cross. And you get this looming presence of the crucifixion. And it, again, it feels like this character that's in the story and they just don't understand it, but it actually feels like they're just growing further and further distant from an understanding of truly what Jesus is there to do. But with every, every prediction, it feels as though the disciples are more confused and little progress is made. But what happens is Jesus is patient, he sits, he teaches, and he sows this truth into their hearts. Like consistently, over and over again, he draws out their hearts and he sows truth into their hearts. And, and I don't know that they were ever going to understand until they saw the resurrected Christ. But if I can remind you of the end, that as he sows these truths into their hearts, the one day, those hearts are given light of genuine belief. One day, as they see the resurrected Christ, there's genuine belief and what was sown begins to grow. That they would reflect back on all of these teachings. That they would see all of the things that Jesus had taught them and all the ways that he would live. And it would be met with a genuine belief that he actually did what he said he was going to do. The resurrected Christ was in front of us. That if he's that, then that means all of that is true. And if all of that is true, then we need to we need to go and tell people. And so this is what happens, that this seed begins to grow after the resurrection in the hearts of the disciples and fruit, plants, life-giving fruit just begins to just overflow out of the lives of these disciples. And so while for right now it feels as though these seeds are just dormant and doing nothing, I don't know about you, but as I read it, I just consistently feel like, man, where, where's the fruit? Like, they just don't feel like they're making progress, but it's not until it's met with genuine belief that fruit begins to grow. So let me, um, let me pray for us this morning, and we'll continue worship. Uh, Father, we, um, Lord, as we come to you, we, we acknowledge that we, we are just desperately in need of you. Lord, that on our own, we are so limited into what we can do. And honestly, our hearts, um, Lord, we realize that we are, um, Lord, we're oftentimes selfish. We're oftentimes prideful. We're oftentimes, we think first about our own self-promotion. Lord, that we naturally just try to consume others and consume things for our own benefit. Um, and Lord, the opposite is what you call us to do. Lord, that we would be consumed by you. Lord, that you would shape us, that you would mold us to look more like you. Lord, I, I pray that as we, um, Lord, as we go into our lives, as we go back into work, as we go back into the city of Philadelphia, whatever neighborhood that we're in, Lord, I, I pray that we would um, just faithfully, faithfully run to you and help others do the same. 
Lord, that we would run to you, experience your love, and that we would display that love to all people, that we would see those that are neglected, or that we would see those that, um, Lord, that just are in need, and that we would be faithfully ready to meet those needs, faithfully ready to serve. Lord, and I pray that the power that is seen would then be utilized for your glory. Lord, would you do that in us? Would we then also serve one another? Would we identify in each other our own needs and would we serve each other with your love and with your power, Lord, in a way that only you um, can do amongst the people? Lord, would you multiply that within us? We love you. In your name, amen. Mm-hmm.